let me just make mention of, uh, of something that we uh, have, have referenced uh, for a few weeks now. Uh, if you are a family member of Salem Chapel, uh, you heard this first. You were sent something in the mail. If you, if you have our newsletter, uh, you also are notified of, of, been notified of this. And that is our Make and Mobilize initiative that we introduced uh, a few weeks back. And if you're uh, new with us or, or maybe you just haven't checked your email in a while, which if that's you, man, what a wonderful reality that would be. I don't know what that's like, uh, but that would be awesome to be able to say that. Um, but the Make and Mobilize initiative, here's what we laid out a few weeks ago, is the very things that we've laid out this year that have begun to establish the culture of discipleship here at this church and, and really being narrowly focused on, man, we want to help people abide with Jesus. That's how we have worded how we are going to disciple and having tools to be able to do that and, and having uh, a way to be able to care for people who are hurting through what we call restore. All of that is a part of discipleship. All of that that you've experienced this year is the fruit of what we took time to do in 2020 in the midst of a complete shutdown. And one of the things that we as elders really felt uh, convinced of is that this is something that we need to come alongside of the partners that we support financially, who, have, who we have planted, who we have supported, who we currently are supporting, who we look forward to, to support and to invest in in the future, and not just focus on writing them a check so that they can buy their equipment and pay their bills and all of those types of things, which is super important, but how can we come along with additional resources, knowing that when you're starting a church, or you're new as a church, your resources are very limited and it doesn't boil down to desire, it just boils down to we only have so many resources. So what if we as a church said, you know what, we have experienced what it means to take our faith from a mediocre place to a place that is growing and flourishing and, 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 and is joyful and we're learning what it means to abide with Jesus. What if we said to those churches, don't allow resources to get in the way of what you know you wanna do, which is say, how are we gonna make disciples in our church? But what if we came alongside of you and met that gap that you have? And so that's the reason why we've set out this goal of $50,000, is just to have some seed money in addition to what we are gonna budget into 2022 to be able to do that with the churches that we have or are currently uh, planting or have planted or are supporting. And, and so what do I mean by that? Let's get real personal. What I mean by that is, is we're gonna do that with City on a Hill, Dave Jacobson, who served here for so long. I was just on the phone with him last week. The pastors that I'm gonna share that are on the screen, I've talked to every one of them, and you know what they've said? We would love that. We would love that. So City on a Hill with Dave Jacobson, Proclamation Church, Derek Delane, who also served for here for many years, Vertical Church in Yeovil in the United Kingdom, Dogs of Church, David Rudy, who we invested in for two years. They're doing great now. Just on the phone with him, like I said, New Creation Fellowship. We had Ike Todd here a few weeks ago, and, and actually he's going to be co-pastoring with a person you haven't met yet, uh, but his name is Recap Gray, and these guys are planning in Orlando. So so I'm just putting faces to what we're trying to do. Now up to this point, and I praise God for this, up to this point, 15, a little over $15,000 has come in. So what I wanna encourage you to do as a family as you're praying, man, Lord, how can we give above and beyond what we give to Salem Chapel and think about being generous, knowing that this season represents what we can give to others. I wanna encourage you to participate in this, whether it's a lot or a little, you can go to our website, salemchapel.org backslash give. There's a make and mobilize drop down. You can write make and mobilize on your check. You can drop it in the connection at the welcome center in those boxes. But I'm telling you what, when I was on the phone with these guys, they were like, man, that's what God's doing in Salem Chapel. That is exactly what we need. And I was excited to tell them, you know what, we're starting, because I already know God's going to provide it. So I was like, well, we're starting, at first, we're starting a restore cohort with all of those pastors that are on that screen and some others in this city. And Robert Chong's gonna come down and he's going to invest in those leaders. So it's happening, folks. It's just a matter of we gonna get on the train with it. And I'm excited about that and what God's gonna do and how he's gonna take what we're experiencing in Salem Chapel and multiply it 
across the churches that God gives us favor with. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. Let me also say with that, I didn't get a chance to say this. Man, if you were here on Wednesday night uh, and got to hear from the testimonies of those individuals that God has just allowed their hearts to be reframed by the gospel of Jesus Christ as they've gone through Restore. And that was a powerful night. We had over 100 people in this room just celebrating with these individuals. And I couldn't stop thinking about that Matthew 4 passage of scripture that we looked at, or John chapter 4 passage a few weeks ago where the woman left her what? She left her water jar. And Jesus reframed her story, and no longer was her story something that she was ashamed of, but she was going around telling everything that Jesus did in her life. And so if that was you and you shared, um, man, I just want to let you know what an encouragement that was to me. And so thank you for doing that. Uh, John chapter 6, we're coming to a passage of Scripture that is, if not the most familiar One of the most familiar passages of scripture in all the gospels, what I mean by gospels, if you're not familiar with that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, outside of the resurrection, this is the only miracle recorded in all four gospels. So the feeding of the 5,000, if you were not following along in our reading plan this week. Now you might say to yourself, man, what a weird passage of scripture to be reading at Christmas time. But as I read this passage of scripture in my own time with the Lord, obviously knowing I was gonna be speaking on it, but, but really saying, Lord, what do you want for me this week as I read this passage of scripture for what I'm going through? I thought to myself after I took time to really read it and, and ask the Lord to, to show me, God, what are you saying? And how is the Holy Spirit making it personal in my life today? And God, how can I be obedient from what I read today? I left this week saying, man, what a great Christmas passage. Because we're going to talk about a boy who gave a gift to Jesus. And we're going to talk about Jesus, our Savior, who is showing that he has come to give us the greatest gift that we could ever be given, the greatest gift that would meet every one of our needs. See, we entitled this series, if you're new with us, that you may believe. That you may believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That you would believe that in every aspect of your life. It's interesting in this passage of Scripture that it's Passover time. I don't know, maybe with such a familiar passage of Scripture you didn't realize that or not, but John points out that it's Passover time. If you don't know what Passover really represents, it epitomizes God's claiming and releasing of his people who were in captivity during Egypt. It also represents the preservation of his people, that what God promised to Abraham, he was fulfilling By supplying them with what? By supplying them with physical deliverance, but supplying them with food on the journey, by supplying them, by rescuing them from every threatening threat or from every threat that they would that they would face, whether it was by sea or by land. The Passover represented that Jesus keeps his promises. The Passover represented that Jesus has the power to keep his promises. The Passover represented that because of Jesus' power, his provision matches up with his promises. So here's the title of the message this morning if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to do so today. It's this, Jesus knows what he is doing. Can you just say that title with me? Can we say that out loud together? Let's just say that right now, ready? Jesus knows what he is doing. Let's just say it one more time. Just do that for me. Can you do that? Jesus knows what he is doing. Here's what I know. I doubt that so often. That's what I know. You know what I know about you? You aren't leaving me alone up here. Because you often doubt that Jesus knows what he's doing. So before we read this passage of scripture and walk through these 15 verses, here's the idea that I really want you to get today that comes out of this text, that Jesus desires to grow your faith from a place of skepticism to a place of security in him. That that's what Jesus desires for you. I wonder this morning 
if you're skeptical in your faith in Jesus. Because here's the reality. We're one of two people today. We're in one of two places today. We're in a place of skepticism when it comes to our faith in Jesus, or we're in a place of security in our faith in Jesus. And so you could be, you're either in one of those two places, but here's what I've found. You may sit here today and listening to me and are like, Johnny, I'm so thankful, man. I'm in a good place in my faith with Jesus. I'm in a good place in abiding with Jesus, walking hand in hand with him as he leads the way. I'm in a, I'm in a good place. I'm, I'm secure in him right now. Praise God for that. And I'm not trying to be, feed your skepticism. But you know what I've found in my life? Even regardless of, or I'm over here and I'm like, man, I'm really skeptical today. I wouldn't admit that to anybody today, but I'm really skeptical. Here's what I've found. Regardless of where you are today, you know what I've found in my life? I can drift from one place to the other. Man, I got a great, I'm having a great day. And I'm like, man, I'm really starting to make strides in my faith in Jesus. And then all of a sudden I get head out of nowhere and all of a sudden I find my place, myself in this place of skepticism. But what this passage is going to show us is that Jesus is committed to grow your faith from a place of skepticism to a place of security. And here's how he's going to do it. As we look at this passage of scripture, I think in this passage of scripture, what we see is he's going to teach us three things that are going to grow our faith. Let me go over here. This is where it is. Skepticism to security in Jesus. So let's start in verses one through three. It says, after this, and so when you see that phrase, sometimes you can think literally after what I just read in the previous chapter, but the reality is, it's just saying that, that it may have been some time from the last thing that you just read, so it doesn't necessarily literally mean like the next day, but just after, could have been a few days, could have been a few weeks, whatever it is, but after this, after what, we, uh, what Mark covered last week in in chapter, chapter five, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Now, I thought to myself, man, I'd show a picture of the Sea of Galilee. You know, I went to Israel a few, we- few years ago, but I feel like I say that often, and, and some of you are like, Moesh, I could go to Israel, so I didn't show that picture because I didn't want to seem like I was gloating. But when I was over in the Sea of Galilee, But I was over, I'm not showing a picture, come on. When I was over there, one of the things that I saw is you had, you had even, even now, much like back then, you had areas of around this, because it was literally like a cereal bowl. There's land all around the, the sea, lake of Galilee. But there's also some places that are desolate. And so most people believe that this other, sea of the sea, other side of the Sea of Galilee was, the, was a more desolate place. Would it make sense because there's room for a lot of people to gather? Verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain. And if you underline in your Bible, which you know I encourage you to do, I want you to underline this phrase. And there he sat down with his disciples. See, here's the first thing that Jesus wants to teach you, that he's committed to teach you, to grow your faith from a place of skepticism to security. Number one, the demands of the crowd are not greater than your need to sit with Jesus. They're not. Now, Jesus is continuing to gain popularity, right? I mean, it's snowballing. He's continuing to gain popularity. Now, if we just look at the book of John, here's the miracles that have already happened. He turned water into wine. He healed an official son. He healed the lame man at Beth, Beth, Bethesda. Not to mention what we have an account in the other gospels that show he even did more miracles than are even mentioned here in the book of John before we get to this passage of scripture. Because remember, this is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that's recorded in all four gospels. But here's what I find interesting. In the midst of all the popularity and all the things that Jesus is doing to gain an audience, to gain a crowd, I find it so interesting that in verse three, he takes his disciples away to sit with them, to rest with them, 
to learn from him. Here's what something, here's something that's so important for you to grasp. Your faith will grow in skepticism when you allow the needs of the crowd to overshadow your need to sit with Jesus. It's what I found in my life. When I get consumed with the crowds and it overshadows my no need that I need to sit with Jesus alone, my skepticism, my faith doesn't grow or doesn't shrink and my faith in God grows. Actually, it's the opposite. Why? Because you will hit a point when you're always focused on the crowd, you'll hit a point where you see yourself and your worth by the size of the crowds and your ability to meet their expectations. Now, here's what I mean by crowds. You're like, well, Johnny, I'm not a preacher. That's not what I mean by crowds. But if you are, that could be what I mean by crowds. I mean anyone who you are responsible for. Moms or dad, your family, your extended family. You're like, man, I'm the only one that I think has it all together and I gotta hold my whole family in place and I get to see them during the holidays, which reminds me of the crowd that I feel responsible for. Man, it's the people that I have at work and I have this responsibility and, and God's given me favor at work and I, I have these people that, that, that look to me for, for direction and for guidance and, and, and for you know, being able to provide for their families and I feel that weight every day. I don't know what it is, but what are the crowds for you? Because if you're always focused on them, what happens? What did I just say? You'll see yourself and your worth by either the size of the crowd or your ability to meet their expectations. And here's what I've found in my life. It is a cyclical pattern that only leads to cynicism. Why? Because the crowds, I'm gonna tell you a secret, the crowds always want more than you can give. Why is that the case? Because I can't give you what you need. You can't give whoever it is that God has placed under your care. You can't give them the most significant thing that they need. Why? What do they need? They need Jesus. And the extent that I can give them Jesus and the extent that I can take God's word and give them what they need is dependent upon me taking the time to get from Jesus what I need. You want to be the best mom to your kids? Sit with Jesus. You want to be the best dad for your kids? Sit with Jesus. You want to be the best boss at work? Sit with Jesus. You want to be the best teacher at your school? Sit with Jesus. And I love how at the beginning of this story, Jesus sets for us an example because Jesus understands, I love the crowds. I want to minister to the crowds. I mean, after all, we don't have this miracle without Jesus having a heart for the crowds. But here's what he understands. The demands of the crowds are not greater than the disciples' needs to sit with him. John 15, five, it's on the wall when you get coffee, says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. You are not anyone's vine. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Say this next part with me, you ready? For apart from me, you can do, say it loud? Nothing. 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 I believe the first thing that the Lord wants to teach us to move our faith from a place of skepticism to security is me understanding I cannot minister to the crowds, whatever crowd I define in my life right now, without me taking the time to sit with Jesus. Why do you think we provided a way for you to read the Bible? Why do you think we said to ourselves, man, what's a way that we can help our people talk to Jesus? 
How can we put something tangible in their hands to help them do that if they don't already have a way? How can we put something in their hands and introduce something to them that maybe they have a different way before we introduced it, but now it's a way that they can actually teach others? Why? Because of the size of the crowds does not negate your need to sit with Jesus. Let's keep reading, verse four. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. I mentioned that earlier when we started, verse five. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Can I just stop there? Uh, I don't want anyone to lose sight. Jesus cared for the crowd. Jesus didn't say, oh my goodness, these people again. I can't get any time to myself. But he didn't do that. Verse six, if there's one verse that you underline in this entire passage of scripture, can you do me a favor, borrow a pen if you don't have one from the person next to you, they won't mind. COVID can't transfer from surfaces from what I'm told. Verse six, he said this to test him. For, underline this, for he himself knew what he would do. He asked Philip a question. Philip, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? But we get insight into Jesus' mind. He's asking this question because he wants to test Philip. He wants to grow Philip's faith. And he asks a question that Jesus already has the answer to. Because Jesus knows. It literally says this. He knows what he would do. John, I believe, is the only one that mentions that, which I think is interesting, because what's John's purpose? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse seven. So what's Philip's response? Philip answered him, well, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. What he's saying here, 200 denarii was literally 200 days wages. Well, verse 8, and one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, how's Andrew going to do? He said to him, verse 9, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Well, what are they for so many? Here's the second thing Jesus wants to teach you to grow your faith from a place of skepticism to a place of security. If you're watching online, get this. The problems you face have their answers with Jesus. That's the second thing the Lord wants to teach you. Because that word test is not like Jesus like, <laughs> I have a way that I'm gonna stump Philip and Andrew. I have a way that I'm gonna ask them a question that's gonna pour guilt and shame upon them. <laughs> Here's the test. It just literally means he wants to grow them in this. And what I believe when I look at these Verses from four to nine, what it says to me is, oh, it's a reminder that the Lord wants to teach me that the problems that I face have their answers in one place, Jesus. See, I think there's three responses that you and I can have when faced with a situation that you don't know how to solve. I think there's three responses that we see in these verses. And we... This morning, have one of these three responses or all three from time to time. Here's the first response. We see it in verse seven. I already read it. You assess the situation and calculate how you can solve it on your own. Have you had those situations? Maybe you've had one this week. Maybe it's pressing on you right now. You have a situation. You're like, man, I have no idea how to solve that, but what do you do? Well, let me see first if I can do it on my own. I don't want to bother Jesus with something if I don't have to. So let me see if I can solve it on my own. So what do you do? You try to solve it practically. What's the practical solution to this? I mean, Mark 6, 35, which is the account of the feeding 5,000 in Mark. Luke 9, 12, which is the account in, of the feeding of the 5,000 in Luke. The disciples' solution, though it's not mentioned in this text, the disciples' solution was to send the people away. Like, Jesus, we don't, have, we don't have the means to be able to do this. We don't have the capacity to be able to do this. We don't have the competency to be able to do this. So here's the obvious practical solution. Send the people away. They'll be back tomorrow for something else. 
They're following us all over the place. Send them away. Can't do it. And oftentimes that's the way that we approach a situation that we don't have the solution for. A problem that we don't have the solution for. Man, we try to solve it practically and then we've determined it's impossible. Some of you are a little smarter than the rest of us, so here's how you try to solve it, mathematically. I mean, not so practically. You're like, okay, there's maybe not a practical solution, so let me pull out my calculator and let me do some math. Here's the need. Here's what we got. Let me total it up. Let me get out an Excel spreadsheet. Let me create all the formulas in that Excel spreadsheet. Let me color code that spreadsheet. Let me even put a pie graph on that spreadsheet. To show you, to show me, can't happen. <laughs> Try to solve it mathematically. I mean, after all, I don't know if Philip was a math whiz, but he's obviously there calculating himself. He's obviously looking out at the crowd that's coming, and he's like, okay, um, let me not just send the people away, but let me think to myself, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, 200 denarii, like couldn't even feed these people. Eight months wages couldn't even feed these people. So is that your response this morning? You're assessing the situation and calculating if you can solve it on your own and you're reaching a solution that can't happen. God can't do that. I'm skeptical of my faith, not secure. Here's another way that I see in verses eight and nine. This is coming from Andrew. You underestimate what you've been given as sufficient to meet the need. So you're like, well, here's why I'm saying no. Here's why I'm saying it's impossible. Here's why I've drawn the conclusion that the problem that I'm facing, that there's no answer to it, that it can't happen, that it's impossible, that I don't want to get my hopes up because I may be disappointed. That if I don't get my hopes up, then I can't be disappointed and I can't be discouraged and I can't battle depression. So I'm just going to basically say that what I've been given is insufficient enough to meet the need. So here's what you try to do, and you reach this conclusion, is, is you try to solve it pragmatically. Because Andrew doesn't, maybe he's a part of the crowd, we don't know, doesn't isn't recorded as sending the crowd away and suggesting that. He's not the one crunching the numbers like Philip. No, Andrew actually goes out and tries to see if he can come up with something and we know this story so well. Your kids in Salem Kids could probably tell it to you. He finds this boy with five barley loaves and two fish. No account gives the boy's name. No account gives how the boy got there. No one gives an account. I don't know. I've always wondered this about the story. How does a mom let her kid go by himself into a massive crowd? Close to water. You ever wonder that? Now, I don't know if you were in Sunday school like mine, but mine had a lot of extra biblical content to ask, answer all those questions that none of them were found in the, in the Bible. <laughs> so all we know is there's this boy, and he has this lunch. And Andrew finds him, but here's what Andrew determines. It's not enough. Can't solve the problem that Jesus is expecting us to solve. Why would Jesus put this burden upon us? But get this, Jesus wasn't putting them in a situation to test their problem-solving skills. He was putting them in this situation to test their faith. Jesus right now is not putting you in a situation. If you're like, man, that's where I am right now and I'm skeptical of my faith. He's not putting you in that situation to test you if you can solve it practically, to test you if you can solve it mathematically, to test it if you can go out and search on your own and be pragmatic about it and solve it pragmatically. He's wanting to grow your faith. He's wanting you to see that the problems that you face have their ultimate answers in one place, and that is Jesus. See, here's the third response that we should all want when we're faced with a situation that we don't know how to solve, is you give to Jesus what you've been given, and you believe the answer for the situation rests in him. Nowhere in the gospels do we see this boy say, this is my lunch. 
Like my mom would be very upset if I come home after she's taken a great risk for me to go out on my own and for me to come home that day and for her to ask me, hey, uh, how was your lunch? Well, mom, I, I gave it to these strangers that I've never met before and I haven't eaten anything all day. We don't see the boy balk. We don't see the boy question. We don't see the boy being coerced and giving his lunch. You know what he does? He just gives it. In fact, in my Bible, you know what I have boxed? There is a boy. Because you know what you see over and over again Jesus talking about? It takes the faith of a child to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Kids are so literal, are they not? <laughs> They're so literal. My kids are no longer because they're teenagers, but at one point in their life, they were literal. Like if I said, we're going to Disney, they're thinking, today. Because they're so literal. But listen, as we grow, skepticism is not something that you're born with. It's not. Our kids are, are, are such a beautiful example of that. That's why we love just observing kids is because there's, lit, there's, there, there's, there's so literal. There's no skepticism like you told me and I'm believing it's going to happen. But what begins to happen, unfortunately, over time? Disappointment happens. Hurt happens. See, skepticism is this. Skepticism is a mindset that's shaped by hurt and disappointment. See, some of us are sitting here this morning and we're skeptical in our faith towards Jesus because we're, we've been hurt. We've been disappointed. We're skeptical, we're angry. And we don't want to have the response of the boy to give to Jesus what we've been given because we're like, man, I'd rather keep what little I have even though I know it can't meet the needs that are faced in me than giving it to Jesus again because in my mind I did that once and I'm believing that he did not measure up to what I expected. So you're hurt. You're disappointed. But what I want you to see in this passage of Scripture is the problems that you face have their answers with Jesus. Nowhere in the passage, nowhere in the Bible do we get this idea that the conclusion that we are making when we give to Jesus what we have, that Jesus is bound to that conclusion that we have. But what I do see over and over again in this passage, in this passage of Scripture and in other passages of Scripture is that Jesus, if we have faith, if we have eyes to see, is going to exceed the conclusions that we may even have made that are different than what Jesus is doing. See, the disciples, see, when I look at this passage of Scripture, here's what I see. Here's what you need to understand. Barley is the bread of the poor. Like only poor people made their bread out of barley. So what I just see is this boy didn't have much and he said these barley loaves. He was from a poor family. He didn't have the bread that kings would eat. But see, the, prop, the disciple, why would, why would Christ use this food? And as we think about the disciples' response, here's why I believe he used this food. Because he could have used anything. He didn't have to use five barley loaves and two fish. But he wanted his disciples to see that no matter what they had, even the tiniest, most menial thing. He wanted you to see this morning that in spite of what you deemed is not good enough, that in spite of what you deemed is not enough, that in spite what you deem, you just aren't gifted enough, you just don't have enough, that he wants you to see this morning that whatever your barley loaves are, whatever your two fish are, that if you give it to him, he can use it. And he will multiply it. Why? Because the answers to my problem rest in the hands of Jesus. But see, the disciples' problem was this. They grossly underestimated their wealth. 
They grossly underestimated what this boy gave them. They all thought that all they have was five loaves and two fish. And if I'm looking at it and being fair, I would have done, drawn the same conclusion. Can't happen. Send the crowds away. Done the math. Practically observed it. Pragmatically searched it all out. Can't happen. But what was wrong with that conclusion? Here's what was wrong. Because at this point, they have spent time with Jesus. At this point, they've seen what Jesus is capable of. They've seen the water changed into Rhine. They've seen the miracle of the official son. Uh, they've heard the, and heard the Jesus healed this paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Have you ever asked yourself, why would they deem this situation different from what they already saw Jesus already do? But before you're too quick to condemn the disciples, I ask myself all that all the time. God, if I actually took time and sat with Jesus and thought to myself and rehearsed in my mind all the different times that Jesus has done miracles in my life, whatever they have been, why in this situation that is causing me to want to be skeptical, why am I doubting that I serve a different Jesus than the Jesus who has done all these things in my life? Because it's so easy for me to forget. Me wanting to do it on my own, me wanting to underestimate what I have, and me stopping from having the faith of this boy. Say, Jesus, you're not asking me to solve the problem. You're just asking me to give in faith what I have. See, here's the third thing, and we're done. Look at verses 10 through 15. Jesus has the five loaves and the two fish. He's about to rock these disciples' world. And Jesus said, have the people Sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So other accounts that I mentioned in Matthew and Mark and Luke says that they gathered the groups in 50 and hundreds. John doesn't get that specific. But look at verse 11. And I want you to underline verse 11 if you can. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, just circle that phrase, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish. Can you read this next phrase with me before, before we get to verse 12? This last phrase starts with so, you ready? Or I'm sorry, starts with as, you ready? You're like, what is he reading? Starts with as, ready, ready? As much as they wanted. Read that again. As much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, not when they had their sample size, not had when they had their snack size, not when they had their sample size like at Costco, no. They'd eaten their fill. He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments. Now there's some thoughts on 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel. We don't know. You know what we know? There was 12 disciples, so they needed 12 baskets. I'm sorry to disappoint, but that's probably the case. With five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the, when the people saw the sign that they had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was coming to the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force, like, like, like literally a frenzy. Like, we got to make this guy king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What I want you to focus on is verse 11. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. It doesn't say Jesus took the loaves and distributed them to those who were seated. It makes a point that he gave thanks before the provision. See, here's the third thing that Jesus wants to teach you to grow your faith from a place of skepticism to a place of security. The need to give thanks for the provision that will come from the hands of Jesus. The importance, the faith, 
that Jesus wants to grow in you and me to give thanks for what he will do even though he has not done it yet. Because that's exactly what Jesus does, setting an example. I'm going to give thanks to the Father, knowing that every good and every perfect thing comes from him, as we see Paul write in the New Testament, before the provision ever happens. Let me give you these to close. How do you put yourself in a position to give thanks for the provision that will come from Jesus' hands? So you're like, well, how do I do that, Johnny? Well, I think this passage of Scripture gives us a perfect instruction on how to do that. Here's the first thing. You hear and obey Jesus' instruction to sit down. You hear and you obey Jesus' instructions to sit down. Notice that before Jesus hands out the food and multiplies the five barley loaves and the two fish, he asks the people to sit down. He doesn't say, keep standing, we're not gonna be here long. No, he says, sit down, sit down. See, he's putting them in a position to receive his provision. And listen to me, I've seen this in my life, and you most likely have seen it in yours, if you've exercised faith in Jesus in your walk with him. Jesus will place you in a position of rest before you receive his provision. I can't remember a time in my life where Jesus provided for me when I was all worked up and anxious and all over the walls, so to speak, and just like pulling what little hair I had left out of my head, that it was like all of a sudden Jesus met me with his provision. You know what I found? Is that Jesus in his grace, you know what he does? He sits me down. Psalm 23, verses one and two. Remember that series that we did years ago? If you were with us at Salem Chapel at that point. The Lord is my shepherd. What does our shepherd do? He never causes us to want. I shall not want. How does he do that? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me lie down. He makes me lie down. One of the worst decisions, well, it was one of the best decisions. But for a time, one of the worst decisions that I made is when I was teaching that, if you remember, I laid down on the stage, because that's literally what it means, and said that Jesus is literally putting you on your back in a place of submission so that you can receive what he wants from you. And Jesus literally did that to me. He put me on my back, and I was like, why did I say that? But I've never found in my life where I'm ready for the Lord's provision before I take the faith to rest, to sit down. And here's the second thing. You trust that Jesus will not squander the faith you're placing in him. See, you first gotta sit down. You first need to say, Lord, I'm gonna submit. I'm gonna believe that the situation that I'm facing is not too big for you to solve. I'm gonna believe that what you've given me is sufficient to solve the situation that you are using to grow my faith. I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna rest, I'm gonna give you everything that I have in this situation, but I'm also going to remind myself that you will not squander whatever little faith or much faith I have in the moment when I give it to you. Do you battle that? Lord, I have this, I want, it to give, I want to give it to you, but I'm not sure that you can handle it. But this boy doesn't do that. I cannot say this enough, Jesus will not squander your faith. Listen to me, he will not squander your faith. He won't do it. Why do I say that? Look at what it says at the end of verse 11. I had you read it out loud two times. When Jesus multiplies these five loaves and two fish, it was as much as they wanted. Like, I don't know if you realize this, but back then during this time, there ain't buffets on every corner. Like, they for sure didn't have the portion sizes that we have. 
So I mean, they never were faced with, wow, we have too much food. But Jesus does something and fills them to the brim as much as they want it. Jesus, I don't, I don't know if it happens or not, but Jesus is like, hey, disciples, go around and see if anybody wants any more. And they're like, I can't, I can't eat anymore. No more fish. No more barley loaves. He won't squander it. What does this mean for you? It means this. That those times when you feel like saying, Lord, you don't understand my problem right now. If you only knew how I felt, Lord. Lord, I have it calculated all out in my mind with the Excel spreadsheets and the graphs and the budget and everything else. I've thought it all through. I've consulted the authorities. I've consulted those in power that would know more than me. And there's nothing that I can do. Listen to me. It is so much harder for me to give God my weaknesses than my strengths. You ever found that? You're like, man, I, I, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty good in the business realm, in the administrative realm. Like, I, I'm confident in that. I have no problem giving God what I'm good at. Man, I'm, I'm pretty good in problem-solving skills, and, 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 and I'm articulate, and I know how to communicate. And Lord, use my communication. What about your weaknesses? What about those things that you're ashamed about? What about those things that make you anxious? That you're like, I'm not good at that. I can't do that. Listen to me. That's what God wants most. He wants the barley loaves. He wants the two fish. You know, studies on the human brain. I read this this week and I was blown away by it. That neurologists did studies on the brain and here's what they found. And when I speak of the brain, I also speak of the parts of the brain that affect our emotions. That you, your brain cannot be anxious and grateful at the same time. It can't happen. That's not Bible. That is Bible, but this is like secular. This is science. Like this isn't somebody saying, I'm going to write that because I believe in Jesus. Maybe he or she does, but he didn't say that in what I was reading. I think that's so interesting. You know, there's some things in my life. I've shared them with people that I trust, people that are close to me, people that have surrounded me, people that hold me accountable, that are partnering with me as I walk hand in hand with Jesus. I came to this passage of scripture this week and I was like, I was really struggling with some things. Just anxiousness in my soul. Because there were certain things that I didn't have the answer to. And it was freaking me out. People that have gone through Restore, you'll understand this language. My common struggle is fear. If you would have told me that three years ago, I would have said, you're nuts. And I look at my life and what, we've, what, what, what risks we've taken. I don't struggle with fear, but oh yes, God showed me I struggle with fear. Now here's the thing. You either flight or fight. I don't think you have to guess much what my response is. Uh, I like to control. That's my response when I'm afraid. I'm not run away from it. I'm like, let me do the math. Let me try to solve it practically. Let me try to solve it pragmatically. And there was just certain things in my life that God was showing me even in this week. Which I'm gonna remind you again of what you already knew. You aren't in control. I just wanna grow your faith. I'm putting you in a situation to test your faith. And I want you to understand that I already know what I'm going to do. Now, I purposely did not ask someone to play behind me because I didn't want to do this. But God had me in that place, and I was going to this passage of Scripture, and here's what I found in a story that I've heard a million times is that what was my response? Because I was like, okay, I know it's fear. Okay, I'm trying to reframe it in light of the gospel and how much Jesus loves me. But Lord, I want a way to be able to speak, a way, a method, whatever it is, that when that fear rises up and when that desire to control and when that desire to solve it mathematically, practically, pragmatically grows up, Lord, I need a, I need a method, I need a way to be able to help me when that 
emotion that doesn't come from you rises up. And you know what God did? He met me in that place. And you know what he said? Here's what I want you to do. It's actually the third thing that God wants to teach you. I really felt like the Lord was saying to me, Johnny, I want you to give thanks for what I'm going to do. But I don't know what it is. Exactly. I want you to believe that I do. See, as we close this morning, here's what I want you to do. And I know we've gone a little long. But here's what I want you to do. Whether it's today or tomorrow in your time with the Lord, is I want you to write out what you're anxious about. What's the problem? What's the need that seems so big that God can't come through? What keeps you up at night right now? What has you filled with skepticism that literally you know it's not right, but you, you can't get out of that headspace? You're so anxious. And what I want you to do is I want you to sit with Jesus, just like the disciples did. I want you to understand that your problems, whatever it is, have their answers in Jesus. And here's the third thing that I want you to do that has made a significance already in my life. I'm not saying that, that anxiousness isn't going to rise up in my heart tomorrow, tomorrow. But I've made a conscious choice this week to say, when it does, I'm going to give thanks and saying, Lord, I'm giving thanks to you for what I don't know you're going to do, but I know you will do. Because you already know. And I'm telling you that that will make a difference. Jesus will not squander your faith. There were fragments left over and Jesus didn't say, ah, leave it for the birds. What did he say? Gather every fragment up. You know what those fragments did? They fed the disciples the next day. And when you submit to the testing of Jesus in your life in regards to your faith, your faith's gonna grow and it's gonna feed your faith for the next time. So would you stand with me this morning? And we're going to sing about the goodness of God. We're going to give thanks for the things that we don't know necessarily how are going to work out yet. But like it says in our passage today, Jesus knows what he's going to do. Lord, we are here today to remind ourselves that you are committed to grow our faith from a place of skepticism to a place of security in you as we walk hand in hand as you lead the way. God, we praise you in Jesus' name.